Psalm 126, A Song of Ascents When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What's it like to be like one of those who dream? A few years ago, I was with Pastor Martin, and and I asked him, what was it like to experience the reunification of Germany? And he replied, oh, you couldn't believe it. We were like those who dream. And the division of Germany was such a painful experience for generations of Germans. Families were divided because maybe one member made it across and the others couldn't. Some families were never reunited, and some families were reunited so late that it was impossible to build or rebuild the uh, family relationships. Can you imagine if you have relatives in the eastern U.S., could, could you imagine if we split the country right down the Mississippi River and hermetically sealed this border? Could you imagine a life without Broadway musicals, or any of the other cultural products of New York. Maybe you like country music. Nashville's on the far side of the Mississippi. Could you imagine a life without country music? Or could you imagine if people on the East Coast had to do without uh, Oregon wines or, you know, Nintendo headquartered up in Redmond, Washington? They couldn't have Nintendo games. So could you imagine a life with this kind of disruption. But could you imagine living like that? And then imagine the national joy when the split country were reunited. Here in the United States, we're used to living like those who dream. I mean, even here at Westminster, we, we enjoy those weekly fellowship meals. We, Enjoy the pleasure of getting to know one another over good food and laughter. We are blessed with good preaching week in and week out. We sing together. We decorate the sanctuary beautifully. We say hello to new people. We rejoice when people join the church, when children and adults alike get baptized. And even outside the walls of our church building, the dream continues on. We spend time with one another. We give each other hugs. We go to one another's place for dinner. And we just have a joyful time. But now we know that that dream didn't last forever. For this COVID-19 pandemic has turned the dream into a nightmare. This is the seventh week since we have uh, met as a congregation The seventh week since we had a fellowship meal, since we sang together, since we saw one another's faces without a screen to mediate our vision. We rarely go out of our homes. 
we struggle to keep up with friends and loved ones. And some of us have even experienced damage to some of our relationships as a result. We're struggling. Even I'm, I'm in a place where I'm thinking about scheduling a counseling appointment. And it's been five years since I last saw a counselor. You know, even just a couple of months of this Twilight Zone life is proving to be really hard for many of us. And we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know if there's going to be a normal. And if there is a normal, we don't know what that new normal will look like. But we do remember. We remember what it was like to dream. We remember what it was like to live a life free of this disease. And we remember when it was easy to say, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So how can we make our way in a world that is completely changed? How can we live with just this memory of our dreams? Well, this psalm points us to two things that we ought to do in times of sorrow. First, we cry out to God with them in prayer. And second, we expect to work through sorrow and find a great harvest from God. So first, we cry out to God in prayer for our sorrows. We see this right here in verse 4. It says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev is a desert region of Israel. It's arid, it's dry, it's rocky, it's rugged terrain. You know, it's a terrible place to grow anything. Today, there's a thriving solar electricity industry in this region. But, you know, back then, they, they didn't have solar panels or any use for them. And here in verse 4, the psalmist is saying, Life is like this dry, lifeless place. We could really use some water. There's no sugar coating here. We're not wrapping up this prayer like a nice gift. When we pray this psalm, we're saying, Things are hard. And we're saying exactly how hard things are. You know, in a lot of evangelical Christianity, there's a tendency to minimize suffering or even to believe that for the Christian who does Christianity right, there isn't even the possibility of suffering. So that if you're living the Christian life the way you ought to, there could only be joy. You'll hop from one blessing to the next. And even if you do allow the reality of suffering, there's still the tendency to downplay it, to say, other people have it worse than I do. Or, it's all in my head. Or, I'm ungrateful to God. And it's true that a full prayer life includes praise and thanksgiving, as well as honesty about our suffering. But, you know, the blessings we experience never eliminate the suffering. They coexist with the suffering, to be sure, but 
the suffering is still real and it matters. And so when you are suffering, you can go to God with complete honesty about how bad it is. I mean, are, are you going to hide from God the reality of what you're going through? He knows what you're going through perfectly well. And you can't keep anything from him, even if you try. And so whatever you're going through, you can definitely tell it to God in prayer exactly how it is. And I've been reading an interesting book lately by the Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen. He was mainly interested in psychology and the interaction between Christian faith and psychology. And in 1987, he suffered a severe spiritual and mental crisis that was brought on by the dissolution of a friendship that he had become dependent on. And a few years later, he published this book, The Inner Voice of Love. It's a series of journal entries to himself as he recovered from this crisis. He, he records these daily spiritual imperatives that he would give himself based on his conversations with the people who were helping him and walking with him through this crisis. That's a personal journal, so if you read it, you'll only find so much of it useful. And again, being a journal, it's rooted in subjective experience rather than theological rigor, but it's still useful. And as I read it, I'm astonished at the honesty with which Nowen confronts his suffering. In the introduction to this book, he writes, I wondered whether I would be able to hold on to my life. Everything came crashing down. My self-esteem, my energy to live and work, my sense of being loved, my hope for healing, my trust in God. Everything. Have you ever been in a place like that? I know some of you have. I think about the worst trial in my own life, and I think it was maybe a quarter that bad, but I find his honesty bracing and refreshing. And I find it an example. For nothing that you can express about your sorrow will come as an affront to God, for he knows it perfectly well. But what's more, he's experienced it firsthand. You know, Jesus knows something about sorrow. Isaiah 53 describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And by the way, Jesus, he really puts paid to the idea that if you live the Christian life the way you want to, you'll escape sorrow altogether. For did anybody ever lead a Christian life as perfectly as Jesus did? Yet Jesus endured enormous suffering suffering that would crush you or me. And so God, in the person of Jesus, entered into suffering the same way you and I suffer, but more so. So God is not indifferent to your suffering. He has suffered personally. He walks with you in your suffering, and he never minimizes it. He never downplays it. He never tells you that, your, that his suffering was worse. He simply bears it with you. And he is strong and he is able to see you through it. He 
is able to endure everything with you. But not only can you be honest with God about what you're suffering, you can be honest with God about what you are seeking him to do about it. For in verse 4, the psalmist asks God to restore our fortunes. He refers back to the same language of verse 1. He says, bring us back to life in the dream. Being able to pray, thy will be done, doesn't stop us from asking for what we want, for he knows it anyway. And we show our trust in him when we present it to him exactly the way we want it. Although we do it with a hard attitude that trusts him to give us what we would want if we knew as much as he does, we ask. You ask God for what you want. And so the psalmist here is praying for a return to days when our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. He's praying for the Lord to be glorified by those who don't know him. He's praying for the Lord to do great things for his people. The sky is the limit for what you can ask God. He might not give it to you just the way you ask for it, but he will listen and he will give you good gifts. So you can ask for anything it could be as small as the reopening of your favorite coffee house. It can be as big as the er eradication of this disease tomorrow. You can ask for things in between, like the ability to meet in person at Westminster again soon. Or me, I, I pray to go to the beach with my friends again. I pray that when the kids move out of Courtyard for the summer, I'm free to give them a hug to say goodbye. This is an aspect of what it means to trust God as our Father. A child just asks their dad for what they want or need. And so we cry out to God in prayer for relief from our sorrows. We both tell him exactly what our sorrows are and exactly what we'd like him to do about them. But there's more than this. We have an expectation that through our sorrows, God will do his work. We have confidence in God to make wise use of our sorrows. It says here that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Now, this is a picture of a farmer who either sows tears as seed or possibly he waters other seed with his tears but the point is that the farmer works with his tears. For farming is hard work. Sowing your seed is not something you take lightly. It is hard. So the idea here is that you really dig into your sorrows. You experience them deeply. You pray hard through your prayers. Through your sorrows, excuse me. You think about Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel, how she fervently prays to God to give her a son. Or think of Job, who prays at great length to God. He howls and wails his lamentation and complaint at God. For bringing your sorrows to God isn't expected to be an easy process. God doesn't call us to bottle up our pain or try to force it down any way. But he doesn't call us to just give vent to our pain either. He calls us to process it through prayer. Your sorrow doesn't exist 
in unlimited quantity and remain unchanged, for sorrow doesn't exist for its own sake. God brings a harvest out of your sorrow. But it doesn't happen unless you do the hard work of sowing in tears. If you wish to reap with shouts of joy, you must sow in tears. And this is the process by which Jesus' own life bore its fruit. It says in Hebrews that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. It's through Jesus' suffering in his life and on the cross that he paid the price for your sins and became the only source of salvation for the whole world. He endured the trial that was set before him. He reaped the harvest. He rose from the dead and he was exalted up to heaven and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he continues to walk with you in your own suffering by offering up his supplications on your behalf. Paul tells us that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign. Blessedness refers to a happiness that arises from full satisfaction in God and all that reflects his character. God himself is forever blessed. Jesus walked in deep sorrow for a while, but reaped a harvest of great joy. And his particular joy was to save for himself a people. His harvest is people like you and me, if you trust yourself to him. And as you yourself toil your way through your own sorrow and pain, God will cause it to bring a harvest of great joy too. He will bring you comfort and peace. It won't be easy, but he'll do it. And it will reach its zenith when we're all glorified. I love the question that Sam asks of Gandalf after the ring is destroyed. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Or think of what C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce saying, Some mortals say of temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it but not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And you will see the fruit of your sorrow within your natural lifetime. You'll be better equipped to be there for others who are grieving. You'll be able to offer personal advice on how to get through it. Sorrow will humble you. It will teach you to turn to God for everything you need. Pain will teach you that you are not strong, but that God is. But the ultimate harvest will come in the life to come, when all that's happened to you in this life will be shown to glorify God as he redeems your mourning and turns it into eternal dancing in his heavenly kingdom. And so in the meantime, let us live life in light of that heavenly kingdom. For we talk sometimes about being the hands and feet of Jesus as we serve people. And with those who are grieving, we have the opportunity to be his ears and voice too. And so be there to listen to those who are grieving. Don't chastise them for it. Sorrow comes to us all. And if Jesus' life is any indication, it comes especially to those who live the Christian life the best.
And so pray for your hurting brothers and sisters. Be present with them. Serve them practically. I don't know how long this current situation will last. We may have this disease with us for good. Nobody knows what normal will look like when all is said and done. It seems unlikely that things will ever be the same as they were before, and everybody is suffering one way or another right now. Even without a pandemic, there's suffering all the time. But you can bring your suffering to God in prayer. He will not make it easier for you. But he will guide you through it. And he will bring a harvest of joy from it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who knows suffering firsthand. But you are a God who is able to redeem it. You are able to bring a harvest of joy out of suffering. And so, Father, we pray that you will teach us to work through our pain in prayer. We pray that you will work your transforming power, glorify yourself through it, and bring your harvest from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.